Broadcasting from the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado, it's time for Kick Set with USA Swimming, bringing you interviews with athletes, coaches, and experts from age group swimming to the national and Olympic teams. Thank you for joining us for Kick Set. I am your host for today, Dan McCarthy. Our guest is Coach Greg Troy. I have known Coach Troy since he was coaching at Bulls. For the past 40 years, he has either been the head coach at Bowles or the University of Florida. Coach Troy was an assistant coach for the 1996 Women's U.S. Olympic Team, the 2008 Men's U.S. Olympic Team, and the head coach of the 2012 Men's U.S. Olympic Team. He has been on staff as a head coach or an assistant coach for a slew of international teams, and he is just as successful domestically. His Florida teams have won multiple SEC titles, the women won NCAAs in 2010, and the men have finished in the top 10 at NCAAs every year since his first season in 1999-2000. Coach Troy announced his retirement from collegiate coaching this past April, but is continuing on as the high-performance coach for the Gator Swim Club. I'm anxious to talk to Coach Troy about his new role, revisit some past conversations about training, and hear his thoughts on longevity as a swim coach. Welcome today, Coach Troy. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. I met you, I guess, almost, <laughs> I guess, 30 years ago at this point when you were at Bulls, the Renshaws were the family from Pittsburgh that yeah. went down to down to Bulls and they trained with you, came back over holidays. Matt and Kate. Yeah, Matt and Kate Renshaw. Um, whenever we were doing that and you were at Bulls, the sense around the country or the, the chattering class was that it was inevitable at some point that you were going to leave Bulls and take over at Florida. Is that true that was inevitable? I don't know about that. I am. Um, Bowles was a unique situation. Uh, I, I, my wife was from Jacksonville, uh, been there for a long time. It, um, it's a great training environment, fantastic school. I actually turned the Florida job down once before I took mm. it. And uh, it just became an evolution, a little different dynamic. I saw swimming going uh, a little bit older age and tired of watching all my athletes go away to college and and want to see if there's a little different a little different challenge i like challenges okay all right um so fast forward now to just recently you announced your retirement from the ncaa part of the program is that a similar you know watching swimming going a different way or was you know this a something you've been preparing for i, I think that um Having a uh, combined program at the college level, you're working with 60 athletes, uh, a staff of coaches. It, it, it's a tremendous focus and a big energy draw. And as, as you get a little bit older, uh, you like to um, focus that energy a little bit more on some, some higher performance objectives. Not that it isn't high performance at the University of Florida, but it's just that it's uh, such a diverse field. Mm -hmm. With the Olympics coming up in Tokyo in 2020, and having uh, six to eight really, really good athletes have a chance to do something. Today's competitive world is so so tight. There's not a whole lot of room for error. I felt like we could probably do a little bit of job of economizing our efforts and really focusing in and giving those people uh, uh, not such a diverse group, but a little more focused group to train with. Earlier this year, I talked with Greg Meehan, and we kind of went through his, how he went from where his first job was to at Stanford, and I think maybe it was like five jobs in 12 years. You've had two jobs in 40 years. I've had three. I spent five years in Fort Myers at, uh, 
at a public high school in what was then Fort Myers Swim Association. Okay. I had a couple of, a uh, few national qualifiers there, kind of gave my start and in a dynamic that wasn't quite as high profile, but we, we put uh, David McCagg and won the junior nationals yeah. down there and sev several people in that dam. Paul Asman, mm -hmm. uh, open water swimmer, came from that dynamic. So I had five years there, but it seems like 20 years might be my shelf life in doing the same thing. <laughs> well, I, there's only a handful of coaches that can say they've been one or two places for 10 years, 15, 20. Once you start getting up into 30, 30, how do you do that? How do you have that kind of longevity? I was told by, by an, an older coach when I first started, when I was actually when I was in Fort Myers, that when, when you find a situation you like, the key is to stay in the same place an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. The the when, when you're in a place of longevity, you, you you get the ebbs and flows, uh, you get the high points, you get the low points. But when you do those things, you learn more about what you're doing. Your athletes can give a lot more back to you because you get a, a better communication with them, and you know them for a longer period of time. So I think that longevity provides for consistency of program and a consistency of effort. So you said um, your wife was very familiar with the area, from the area, um, three children that grew up in the area. So the work-life balance had to have made staying there easy. Yeah, and, and, and my sons all went to school at Bowles, so I, I saw a lot of them at, uh, at formative ages. Uh, they were on the swim team there, so it was close. They were at school, so I saw them every day. That was a, a real nice, nice environment. But, but Bowles also, we had, um, I was fortunate in both my jobs, I worked for basically uh, one employer. I had the same headmaster for all 20 years at Bowles. And he was uh, understanding the sport, supportive of where we wanted to go, understood high performance. Mm -hmm. he, he really had a, uh, even though he wasn't a swimmer himself and had, wasn't even really from the sports world, he, he looked at it as an offshoot of education where you're looking for excellence, and he appreciated that. Um, my original athletic director at Florida that I worked for for 18 years, Jeremy Fold, it was the same dynamic. And, and the second one's been very much the same way Scott Strickland. So when you're working with people that allow you the, um, the freedom to do what it takes to be successful, it, it's uh, a much better dynamic. Let's talk a little bit more about the boarding prep schools. Obviously, they're still turning out some pretty fast swimmers. In your opinion, um, are they as strong as they were in the 80s and 90s? Oh, I, I think those things are... Our ebbs and flows, we had some really unique teams in the 80s and 90s, um, some tremendous athletes, uh, a variety of foreigners as well as some Americans. Uh, certainly when uh, when Caleb and, and his group was at Bowles, now Caleb didn't go to Bowles, he swam in what we called then, we named it, they still call it the same today. Uh, so that'd be 40 years ago, I started the late night group was for the guys that didn't go to Bowles. <laughs> and that's why they, they swam late at night, they swam 8 to 10 at night. And, and when I first got there, that was actually the practice group that uh, the best athletes were in. They went to other high schools and they were driving in from all over to train, train at Bowles. The um, Bowles has had ebbs and flows, but been pretty consistent the whole way through. It's just a real good dynamic, good facilities, and a combination of good education at the same time. There's been a, a little bit of a change. There's more athletes, and I'm not going to say a lot of them, but some successful athletes that have gone the homeschool route so that they can maybe live in a different city than their family and train. Um, they you know, maybe online courses. This is to get through high school. I, what do you think? Is that a great idea? It's a great idea for certain individuals. Mm -hmm. It depends on whether they have the discipline to put that homeschooling together. And I've always taken the philosophically a little bit of approach. Swimming is really important. It's certainly something that's um, when the athletes are involved in it, it takes a, a total commitment to be very, very successful. But at the same time, it's only part of life. And it, it does teach some tremendous life skills. 
So I, I'm not sure that um, everyone's designed to be homeschooled. Right. Uh, the, the, the social graces you get, the social interaction, the things that you learn later in life, sometimes you miss some of that when you're homeschooled. Now, if, if you're someone that can get that from within the team and you can get that from other dynamics or you're someone that that fits what you're mold, but some people just aren't fit for it and it maybe handicaps a little bit what they want to do with their life. So it's, it's a little beyond the pool. It depends on the individual. Um, a couple of years ago, you and I had a conversation at Santa Clara and it was a really impactful conversation for me. I got uh, an article out of it and it used it to start many a conversation. But I asked you uh, why the 100,000-yard training week is no more, why it has disappeared. And your response to me was um, there's, you know, just because it's not being done anymore doesn't mean that that's a good idea, that there aren't some people out there that should, wouldn't be betting, betting and benefiting from it. I got the gist of what you're saying, but um, for the people that are listening, could you help explain what you're trying to explain to me? Uh, Bill Sweetnam, one of the greats in our sport, mm -hmm. uh, talks oftentimes, and Bill's a Fortune 500 company speaker, and he's, yeah. he's a motivator as well as a swim coach. And he talks about uh, how important it is that uh, the old dogs learn new tricks. Mm -hmm. And, and it is. The, the swim world, the sporting world, the world in general is always evolving. So you have to be open enough to new things that are going on and understand what's important. At the same time, if you do only the new tricks and you forget what you learned from the old, you've thrown the baby out with a bath. So I, I think that there's some, some of the old tricks which were very, very successful. And if you take out some of the new innovations, and uh, the, the suit technology, the rule changes that provide things to be faster and, and designs for pools and everything. And you take some people that swam in the 80s, and you take some people like the Tracy Calkins of the world and, and Mary Mars, and look at what they did in those dynamics. Those swims are equally as good as what we're getting today. So, so blending the old and the new is probably the most important thing you do. Um, is 100,000... It's arbitrary figure. It, it used to be an. It, there, there was a time when when a hundred thousand. There was a, a time when in my coaching career where I was I was certainly part of it, and that um, whatever the other guy was doing, if you could do more, you had an opportunity to to, to be more successful. And I, I think there's more talented athletes in the sport now, so you can probably get by with a little bit less and still be as successful. That doesn't mean that that talented athlete wasn't to do a little bit more, they wouldn't be better. So I, I think it's, it's very much a, a meshing of, um, of what's good for the athlete, okay. um, what, uh, what makes sense in the fatigue factor, uh, the length of the season and the age they're looking at. I, I haven't been, I've got a few athletes that have been 100,000. In, in the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. um, those athletes have coincidentally at some point afterwards had a breakthrough. Yeah. There's a dynamic that, that it, that's there to that. Uh, how you do it and what kind of sanity you put on it's important. There's some athletes that never see that and are high, highly successful. Uh, swimming is a very individual sport. Yeah. Um, the, the human body responds differently. The, it's, I tell our athletes all the time, there's obviously no one answer. Because if there was, someone would write the book, everyone would run the book, and then the, that it wouldn't mean anything. That's why it's so special. So finding what's, what's special with each person, how you're going to massage the, and complement those things, when to go 100,000, when not to go 100,000, right. when 100,000 is too much. Um, I, I think those things are all there. 100,000 might be overkill. 
um, but it may not, and I don't think anyone really has that answer. Right. Uh, I know there's a, a coach, I'm not sure which college in Texas, it's a, a track coach, and all his 400-meter runners um, do some mileage plus, you know, mile, two mile, three mile plus easy running training. I just, uh, I've always listened to the stuff that Jan Olbrecht has talked about and the, uh, the, the low quality aerobic yardage. And I actually like your term for it the best. And anybody that hasn't heard it, it's called garbage yards. <laughs> okay. And it's kind of like a, a funny derogatory way of saying it. Um, but is this a, a must buy-in for your most successful athletes? I, I think it's very important. I don't know. I termed it garbage yard, and it's been thrown at us a lot. I mean, and that, that's that, 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 that's a term from when uh, when um, volume is not not something that a lot of people right. really do, and there was garbage to it. I, I don't think there's any such thing as real garbage yard. I used right. it in a talk as a as a it's uh, sarcastic post. <laughs> the um, the the aspect repetition is key. Mm -hmm. Repetition of correct is even more important. Mm. And, and the more times you can repeat something correct, the greater chance is you're going to do it correct under pressure. It's impossible to do it um, correct at very, very high speeds and maximum velocities and maximum efforts unless you take maximum amount of time too. And then you still can't do it as many times as you can do it slow when you repeat it consistently and uh, with, with very little rest. So you're looking at actually looking at technique. Mm -hmm. It is garbage yards if there's no focus in the process of doing it. Right. If there's a focus in process of doing it and the, the neuromuscular response is the same as what you would like to see from the standpoint of kinesthetic feel, not muscular response as right. much as kinesthetic feel, then it's hugely beneficial. Um, the, the analogy I've used in a talk before is when, it, when he's his best, Tiger Woods could hit that nine iron, he'd probably hit that first one inside a, a 10 foot radius all the time from 150 yards out. But then why did he go out and practice and hit hundreds of them? Mm. He had hundreds of them so that the muscle memory was there to do it when he needed to do it. When there were distractions, when fatigue was a factor, he's in the 18th hole under big pressure and the, in the masters he could do those things. Yeah. And, and that's repetition in a sport that has no aerobic component to it. So there, there's certainly something to be said for repetition. Um, if if you go the other extreme and say, well, there's there's no need for that long, and it is boring. It is it's it's a mental process too. There's right. there's a mental mental thing you get get from those longer swims. If you go the other direction, and you don't do it all. And, and I've worked with some athletes who've been very very low volume and highly successful, but it doesn't change the one thing that's key. Either one, the time factor is still the same. Right. And I think sometimes that's what distorts it. Um, people have made the time factor in, in today's busy world. If you can do it in less time, it's easier. So sometimes you swim faster, but you do it for less time when in reality, if you're going to train at maximum velocities with really, really good technique, you've got to rest a whole lot more to do it. So then you've got to do it for the same amount of time you would as if you were putting in the yardage. Right. So the, there's very few things. We, we talk a lot with our athletes, and, and, and again, I'm back to swim being a preparation point for life. We talk to them a lot. There's very few things you're going to do in life where you do it less time and you're going to get better results. Right. Whether it's relationships, your job, your schoolwork, or athletics, it usually takes about the same amount of time. Now, how you use that time 
there's all kinds of different ways. Now we're back to individuals. Right. Is it 100,000 and 20 hours a week and you're swimming a lot of longer practices where you're stopping less? Or is it only 45,000 or 35,000 and swimming really, really good with real high rest? But it still takes about the same amount of time for the people that are really successful. Talking about time, so compare 2000 to 2018 and the changes that the NCAA has brought to the amount of time and what you can do with your athletes. Um, did it change drastically for you? How did you adapt to that? Um, I, I think um, it, it forces the athlete to actually make some decisions. Mm -hmm. um, the NCAA legislation allows an athlete an out if they feel like they don't want to put in the time. Um, the thing that amazes me about the NC2A legislation is that if you want to be a great pianist and you're in the music department, you can practice as much as you want. If a, if a swimmer wants to practice as much as they want, they can still make the grades in the classroom. They're no different than the great pianist. So I, I think in that, in that dynamic, um, the, um, the problem with the NC2A isn't the, the, the time restriction. The problem is that the, the rules are general for all sports. Right. If they were sports specific, then there would be a recognition that maybe our sport requires a little bit more time than some others. Um, but, you know, 20 hours, uh, a really good collegiate athlete at 20 hours can swim four to 5,000 hours, they don't take a whole lot of rest. So 100,000 is possible in that. It's just extremely fatiguing right. because there's no, there's no, there's sure. no fluff time. Right. And, and the fluff time's important even if you're, you're going 100,000. We, we don't go 100,000 anymore. Our, our big weeks now, even when we went 100, when, when I was training in the 80s and we did go 100, we would go a week of 100 here and there. Uh, was it really effective? Possibly not. It was more effective mentally than it was physically because if I can go 100 one time, Three weeks later, 70 seems like a breeze. Right. Then you can swim the 70 at a higher pace, a higher intensity level, and you feel comfortable with it. And my rule of thumb for most of the events that have been a little bit longer is that 70,000 is, is one of those threshold points that you've got to be around. Okay. And, and the 100,000 was more designed that we've done this, now we can get a little bit more out of 70 when we do. All right. Um, I'm going to throw some names at you here. I'm not actually interested in your opinion of like any one athlete, but so uh, Trina Jackson, okay, uh, Caroline Burkle, Elizabeth Beisel, Ryan Lochte, Gemma Spalforth, Caleb Dressel. Would you say, now these are all some of the most exceptional athletes that have come through your program. I may have missed one or two there. Would you say they're interchangeable? Ryan could have gone back and trained in the era that Trina did. Or Trina would have been just as successful coming up and training alongside Elizabeth Beisel, or were they athletes that existed in their time? I, I think I'd start that off as, as, I, as I, I've never been an assistant coach. Okay. So I've probably made a lot of mistakes from athletes, and I try to learn from those mistakes and <laughs> learn from the athletes. So when I've made the mistake, I try not to make the same one again. So I, I would like to think that I'm, uh, if not a better coach, hopefully a smarter coach now than what I was 20 years ago or, or certainly 40 years ago. But um, you, you take all those athletes. I, the, the best analogy I can give you, I, I asked Anthony Nesty who swam for me mm -hmm. um, uh, several years ago because we, we don't do the same as when he swam for me, not quite the same. And Anthony was a gold medalist. He won the 100 fly in the last stroke um, and was a tremendously hard worker. 
swam shorter events but worked in a dynamic that didn't even relate to that. I asked him one time whether he thought he would be better if he was training with me now with what we do now yeah. or would the people I'm training now be better if they're training with me before. He didn't have to think about it too long. He felt dramatically it would be better if they were training with me before, that we weren't doing enough. Hmm. I, I, I don't... I, I don't... I think there's a positive both. I, I wish I had a good answer for it. Yeah. Um, I, I know this. Those athletes you mentioned all had the same characteristic. They weren't. They were willing to challenge anything you gave them. They couldn't all do it the same way, but they challenged it. Uh, Gemma Spoffer had very, very weak training skills. On a day-to-day -day basis, when you saw her train, it's like, wow, she's going to go that fast. But, but she was everything she was doing. That that was what her body could handle. She swam some pretty high volume. Yeah. Um, but yet. How long did she hold the world record in the hundred backstroke? But but you could tell when she was doing it, the effort and the focus was there. She wasn't just doing it. Uh, she would fatigue a little bit closer, and you just had to watch what she was doing. Trina Jackson was just tougher than nails. She could go all day long, and but there was always a challenge there. So I I don't think it has a, as much to do with the volume. It has to do with the challenge, the focus, and all of those people. They um, were constantly looking for who was in front of them. How can I catch that person? How do I get to? Uh, each of them all had the same characteristics. No matter what we were doing in training, when we had a success, when we had an unsuccessful competition, we came back and we looked for ways to improve upon it. And they were willing to do more things to make the next success, next competition successful. They also had at the same time the ability when they had a successful competition, they didn't come back and rest in their laurels. They took back the same thing that made them successful. And they did either more, or did it better, or added things to it. Uh, so, so many times, um, athletes get too far away from what makes them successful. Mm -hmm. And we're back to that individuality again. Right. If, if this model has made you successful, you can mold the model and change it a little bit, but you don't want to throw it away and start over. Okay. I don't know if that answers your question, no. but that's... No, that's... I just... You, you always hear the conversation, especially now, like during the, like the NBA playoffs, and... You know, LeBron hits the big shot the other night, and you know the conversation starts again. Is he the greatest ever? And then you have the people say, "Well, no, it's Jordan." And then older folks say, "Oh, it's Wilt Chamberlain." And then they say, "Well, if you interchange them between the different uh, times during the different eras, would they've been able to play in those eras?" And it got me thinking about our athletes. You know, if you could switch eras and you know put them into different situations, are they all just as successful? And especially when you're talking about the best of the best. I think the best would be just as successful. Right. Um, they would either pick up new techniques which would make them successful, or they would take their old techniques to a new level. Right. The, the, those people have some common knowledge. Now, there's some athletic skills involved, but at the same time, um, uh, you know, 20 points in a basketball game is 20 points in a basketball game, but you're defending against different people. Yeah. And the swimming still, 100 yards is still 100 yards. Yeah. 100 meters is still 100 meters. There are a few technical things that change a little bit. But so, it's, so it's a little easier to define our sport from that standpoint. Sure. I'm back again to that Tracy Cochran, how fast would Tracy Cochran been with the with today's technology and suits? And she and was that. still touching the wall on backstroke turns, and, and she thing. wasn't taking that many kicks underwater and things. So Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to kind of change the scope a little bit. One of the things I've always admired about you is that you have 
been adamant that the responsibility for the results that occur in your programs begin and end on your deck. So what that means is that USA Swimming is a tool that you'd be willing to use, but you're going to be just as successful whether we're present or whether we're not present. However, when I look at you know, your accomplishments, it would be hard pressed to find somebody that has been a coach for as many teams representing the United States as you have been. So while you're accepting the personal responsibility of what occurs in your pool, um, you are also very much integrated into USA Swimming. Um, is that a fair assessment of your philosophy? I, I think so. The, the um, um, United States Swimming provides a tremendous vehicle for us to use. It doesn't mean you have to use all aspects of the vehicle. Um, I, I think that um, one of the things that makes United States Swimming successful is the flexibility. The flexibility of the coach and the athlete to make decisions, this fits me and this doesn't fit. And and the, the more we can keep that aspect, I think the, that there's a strength to that. Sure. Um, the, the strength of the United States is, uh, is sitting here looking at that map behind you, you got all these states and people, and there's clubs all over the place, and some people have great facilities and some people have horrible facilities. The diversity of how we do things is tremendous. Um, Sometimes in today's world, there's you want to codify what's happening, and we've got to be very careful that we don't become the other countries. They would give anything to have our system and have our number of athletes and have our diversity, but since they don't have those same um, positives, they try to condense their talent into small groups because they're afraid they're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure it's always good for us to follow their model. Maybe they would be better off to spread their athletes out a little bit more because speed breeds speed. And if you if you take all your best athletes out of each area and you bring them all together, they're, they're all there together. But then who's going to be the speed for all those other people? That right. And then I, I just wonder if that, that isn't key in what we're doing. So we were always, at, at, at especially at Bulls, we were the program about not being afraid to do things different, but knowing where our home base was. Right. Um, so if you could improve one or two things about the pre-collegiate system in USA Swimming, would you, what would your suggestions be? Say you got to be uh, the swim czar for a day. You said, okay, I want these two things implemented. Um, or that might be counter to what you feel in the first place. I don't want anything implemented. Um, we live... Uh, we have a, um, a delayed gratification sport mm -hmm. and an instant gratification society. Yes, we do. The more we can do to um, alleviate, alleviate that need that you've got to be fast all the time, you've got to be great at this age, you've got to be the best age group or the best this, I think sometimes those work against us. Mm -hmm. um, great bottles of wine aren't all, aren't all opened at the same time. If you open them all at the same time, they aren't great bottles of wine. There's some of them vinegar. It's going to be all over the place. Right. So I, I think that um, that if there's any anything we can do that that calms that down, lets athletes develop a little more on their own. Um, there's not this massive pressure of always evaluating where we're at, but evaluating where we're going, okay. the process we're getting there. I think that might be important and more important. We, we all know when you look at the national age group rankings. 
and you start looking at the best 10 and unders, the best 11 and 12s, even the best 13, 14s. Very few of those people are really the best as they go on. It's the ones that develop through the system. They're just a little bit further behind, but they're close. They understand the system, but they Hungry. aren't always under the gun. Hungry is probably a really good word. Um, I think those those are the ones that sometimes tend to come out and be the best. We, we talked about a little team and, and, and our club team, Gators from Club, the club program in town is, is a pretty good team. They've had success with very very low numbers and producing some pretty good athletes. We, we talked a little bit about the Michael Phelps effect. Okay. You know, from 15 on, Michael didn't lose very often. And he wins big a lot. Right. And I, and I think that that's a tribute to Michael's work ethic. It's a tribute to Bob and the relationship they had and how well they worked together. But it's, it's, it's unusual. It's not the norm. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think there's a tendency for people to judge it as the norm. So um, a, a child wins once, and all of a sudden, the parent and everyone is on board. Sometimes United States swimming too. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is going to be the next person. And then they don't do as well for a while. It affects their psyche. Um, it, it affects their ability to do it. And then there's something wrong. That's something wrong. Failure is part of the sport. It is normal. Right we, we use the analogy a lot. I, I wish Bob would talk about it sometimes. I, I don't know how long, but I think it's from uh, from 2004 at Greece, where Michael was very good, till probably the World Championships. Maybe it was in Melbourne in January 2006. I don't think Michael had a best time in any of his key events. He had plateaued a little bit, still working hard. He and Bob are still in the same place. And I know... Michael was a little bit frustrated. I was at the meet in 2006. In 2006, he popped and broke loose again. Right. I think the commitment to staying on top of that is really important. But he was so far ahead of everyone else, he's still winning when that was happened, but people miss that. Yeah. But in, in today's world, especially, it's, it's so competitive. If you stay at the same place for a long period of time, someone that didn't beat you is going to beat you at some point. And then there's something wrong with you. Michael was just that far ahead of everyone. He could stay at the same place and still stay ahead. But he was still working towards getting better. Okay. And that goes to, I mean, and we've talked about this very recently, you know, the the concept like, oh, these kids these days, they expect instant gratification. But isn't that a, uh, isn't that a parent problem, not a kid's problem? They're learning it somewhere. I think it's societal. Societal. It's, it's not just us. You talk to, one of the best things about being in a collegiate environment is, uh, especially a place like Florida where all the sports are good. We don't have any sports that aren't good, and all the coaches are they are really quality folks. They know what they're doing. And um, we sit uh, at a monthly roundtable with all the other coaches. They're fighting the same problems. Okay. The, 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 the entitlement issues, the, uh, the need to be successful right away, um, the, the, they all have them. They just have them in their form, not necessarily in our form. Right. It's across the board. It, it was, it's probably one of the most uh, – we've been doing it now for about uh, – four or five years at Florida. Yeah. Um, maybe as good or better than any coaching clinics I've been and learned more about those and probably made me a better coach now because I've seen some of those things and heard some of those things from uh, from another sport. Yeah. We get a little inbred in swimming sometimes. Yes, we do. Uh, I think we, we might be better off to reach out sometimes in our clinics and things to bring in highly successful people from other places and compare problems because they have the same problems. Duly noted. Yeah. All right. Um, so you're 67, you're going into what sounds like a really cool phase, just, you know, Olympic focus, international focus. You look pretty healthy, all right? Whenever I talk to coaches and, you know, I'm hearing like vascular disease, skin cancer, hip replacements, you're looking pretty solid. How are yeah, you doing I've, it? Well, I've, 
I've fought some issues, but uh, it, it, it's uh, it's uh, staying on top of things. I, but uh, everyone has some issues. Just a matter of how you deal with those things. You make sure you take some time every day or every week. I probably don't take enough. <laughs> uh, th- that's a little of the process right now. I, I think um, I think the eight great athletes we have, we we can uh, not compromise anything. The, the guys I'm going to be working with, we cannot compromise anything. We can be on top of what we need to do, but but uh, the logistics of moving large groups of people and and planning practice for for 60 people and as many coaches as almost I'm going to have athletes right now is going to allow for a little bit different lifestyles, but still not compromise anything we need to do to be sure. successful in Tokyo. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Coach. Thank you. Anytime. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Kick Set with USA Swimming. Check out www.usaswimming.org slash kickset for more episodes and add Kick Set to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes.